So in chapter 19, this rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him that he needs to sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. And it's interesting because the parable, in, the story ends, it's not a parable, it's a story. The story ends with the rich, rich young man leaving very sad because he couldn't do what Jesus asked him to do. Now, Jesus wouldn't have given the same instructions to everybody. It was just for him that these instructions apply because Jesus knew that that was an issue for this young man. And in order to be able to be a disciple, he was going to have to rid himself of that thing uh, that stood in the way of his discipleship. So Jesus is standing there with his disciples, and he says to them in commentary on this story, this event that has just happened, uh, it will be easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Peter catches the significance of that. And Peter says, well then who on earth can be saved? And Jesus says, for mortals, everything's impossible. But with God, nothing's impossible. Important statement. Very, very important statement. And Peter says, well, look, we've, we've left everything. We've given up everything. We've given up family and possessions and our vocations and all of that to follow you. What are we going to get? Isn't that a typical human sort of approach to this. I mean, we're always wondering what we're going to get. And Jesus says at that point, and it's a bookend on the parable we're going to look at today. Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, I just think that is such a significant statement that we ought to include that in our thinking, our understandings of what it is that Jesus is calling us to. Many that are first will be last. Many that are last will be first. Almost like a bookend is this, because Jesus is going to repeat this statement at the end of the parable that we're looking at today. It's Jesus' way of saying, I want you to pay attention to this idea. Many that are first will be last. Many that are last will be first. So then he tells this parable, and I started to, I was thinking about having audience participation, but I won't, I'll just ask it rhetorically. What would you do, or how would you think about going to a company and working for this company and working up seniority and investing your life and working hard and paying your dues and you finally get to a pretty nice salary and then the company hires somebody 
new, who has a lower position than you do, and they immediately start paying them the same salary you get. I think we'd all react to that. I think we'd all go, wait a minute. That person didn't pay their dues. So the logic of this parable that Jesus tells, he tells the story about people that were hired at various times during the day and they were all paid the same wage. We understand why at the end of the day when the people hired first who, was th who were there for 12 hours say, wait a minute, they got paid, they worked an hour, they got the paid the same thing that we got paid who worked 12 hours. Makes sense, doesn't it? Labor unions are probably a good way to think about this. Labor unions protect classes of work, and so if you're an electrician, you can't do a dock worker's job and vice versa. You can only be an electrician. Uh, unions guarantee certain wages, lunch and coffee breaks, um, other rights of employment, seniority rights, all of that sort of thing. And as a nation, as a people, we like to be protected in that way. We, we like it because it seems like it's fair. It's the way things ought to be. And Jesus' parable proposes a world in which those sorts of things don't exist. It offends us. What about if you're a union member? What about the non-union member that comes in here and gets the same rights as we do? What about the disenfranchised? What about the unfair thing? What about the overly generous? And in American style, we scream, you're violating my rights. It's because of our, our sense of what is fair. We've heard this before in the Bible. Jesus told another parable. In this parable, it's, we call it the prodigal son, and it's really about the self-righteous brother would be the better, top, uh, better title for this parable. But this wild hair of a son demands his, his money from his father, and he leaves. And he goes and he spends all of his money, all of his inheritance on wine, women, and song. And the parable says he finds himself in a pig pen eating pig food when everything is gone and all of his friends are gone. And he comes to himself and he says, wait a minute, I could do better in my father's house as a servant than I am doing here. I'm going to go home. So he goes home. His father throws a party. The offended older brother says, you never threw a party for me. And I didn't leave home. I didn't spend my inheritance. I didn't treat you like you were dead. She hadn't thrown a party for me. We get that, don't we? Or like in the Roman church. Roman churches, the Roman church accused Paul 
of preaching on grace too much. I don't know exactly what they said, but I think it was probably something like, you're just opening wide the gates for any kind of behavior in this church. You talk about grace too much. And they too had offended pride. I think probably the starkest example of this is, you remember Jeffrey Dahmer? It's a horrible story. Probably one of the most horrific stories that we could tell today. One day, a friend of mine in Wisconsin, his name's Roy, got a phone call. phone call was from a prison. I think it was from the prison. Jeffrey Dahmer would like to talk to you. And so he went to the prison and sat in Jeffrey Dahmer's cell, talked to him about the Lord and the Bible correspondence course that he was taking in prison. And it ultimately led to Jeffrey Dahmer being baptized. Does that blow your mind or what? And I remember another friend of mine, I mean, we could spend all day talking about that, couldn't we? But I remember a friend of mine saying, boy, that's just wrong. You know, as as awful as that man was and the awful things that he did, that was just wrong. So we really understand the upshot of Jesus' parable here. Wherever you fall on this this line of stories that we've been telling this morning, there's always a time when we say, wait a minute, that's, that's enough. And I think that's what Jesus wants this parable to do to us. I, I think he wants us, it to, to pull us up short. I think he wants us to think about how with the declaration of the gospel comes an inversion of values, human values as we know them. So layer number one to this parable is this whole thing of offended pride. There's a second layer, and this layer I would call, it depends where you live. According to the parable, the workers came at different times of the day. Uh, The text doesn't really make a big deal of this, but it might be a good way for us to think about the ways that we all come to faith at different points in our lives. So they come at dawn at 9 o'clock, at noon, at 3 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock. That's when the owner of the vineyard goes to the marketplace to hire workers. And you could think about those hours being times of our lives. Sometimes people come to faith at a very late time in their lives. Reading a book now by a, a guy that lives in the Midwest, and it's a It's a book, it's a set of letters between him and his atheist father. And they're talking about faith, and his father gets to uh, ask questions of him. Why do you believe this? And I I have a hard time believing in a God who does that, and, and that sort of thing. Eventually, this father, who's now an old man, comes to faith. Decides that he believes what his son has been telling him. Pretty neat story. Sometimes it's 
people like me that were raised in Christian homes, I cut my teeth on it. That's all I ever heard. You know, got Bible storybooks for Christmas and and things like that. So, how do you identify with a parable? When when you hear this story about what happens in this vineyard, where do you, what's your entry point? Who do you identify with in the parable? Is it the worker hired early in the day? Do you feel some sense of privilege? You know, I, I've had my moments. It's like I, I paid my dues. I, I grew up in this. I cut my teeth on this. It's one of the dangers about growing up in churches because if you're not careful, you start to feel entitled. Or maybe, maybe it was later in the day for you. Maybe maybe you didn't have the advantage that I had. I think Jesus wants us to know it doesn't really make any difference with him. I think that's one of the big messages in here. If you think about this as a financial or a legal proposition, uh, like the first workers there, um, there's a lot of opportunities to feel entitled, to feel blessed, or even cursed by what life deals out to you. Have you ever said to God, wait a minute, God, this is not what I signed up for. I think I ought to be getting a better deal than this. How do you think about what would be the deal breaker for you? you know, is there could, could we could any of us ever be like the the first hired workers who would say, "Wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. This is a deal breaker. I don't want any part of this because you're being too generous. You're being too kind. I'm not getting my fair dues out of this deal." But when you think about serving God in terms of economic benefits or that sort, any sort of benefit, you start making comparisons. I start making comparisons. And God wants us to understand that it's relationship with Him that's the big thing in this. All of this translates into what we think about grace. And all my years of ministry, I've decided there's some people who really do not like the idea of grace. They really don't like it. It's like they really want it to be a matter of, or at least they think they do, want it to be a matter of of justice and, and earned relationship with God and that sort of thing. Actually, they're not going to like it if they go that direction because they too will find themselves on the short end of the stick if if that's what God starts doing with us. Third layer. God and all things are possible. So the first layer was the whole thing of offended pride. The second layer is where 
where are you on the spectrum? Where do you enter this parable? And how does that affect the way you hear the parable? And the third is how God affects this parable. Skip Johnson writes that the parable leaves the listener with a sense of violated logic and dis excuse me, and disorientation. It is disorienting. It's very disorienting. And Jesus intended his parables to do that. If I come away from it going, oh, that's I really like that parable, I probably misunderstood it. Because <laughs> Jesus wants to upset my apple cart. The disciples are the ones in this story who get the impossibility of what we, uh, what we find in this parable. And in this, in that story before, they they get it, they they understand it. Uh, how can an, how can the rich be saved? Peter says. But how also can the thief be saved? As in the thief on the cross, or how about the fornicator, or how about the gossip? How about the person who stabs their fellow employee in the back? Or how about the person that mistreats a family member? What, what about them? Uh, the parable really helps us see that we serve a God who is, frankly, generous. That's the way he is. He's a generous God. And he loves us generously. Now, since he turns things upside down, things aren't always the way that I expect them to be. And sometimes I may be looking for a different kind of generosity than what God has given to me, or I think God has given to me. But honestly, God is a generous God. He's generous to everybody. He's, he's generous to people that I think are egregious sinners. I am too, by the way, or people who are more like me and you know nice and clean and made up and righteous. You know I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek. God loves us all. The problem is converting the heart of the person who has not grasped the reality of the universal need of grace. That's where the conversion has to occur. The, the conversion needs to be of my heart. Grace is painful, Skip Johnson said, because grace changes us. Grace changes me. Uh, it makes me look at people differently. I have to if I'm a person of grace. Grace converts my anger. I can no longer... Be angry at the world. I can no longer focus my anger and wrath on other people because I understand that Christ has saved me. And His, his grace has entered my life. It, it changes me. And grace turns me into a generous person. If I truly understand grace, if I understand what God has done for me, it, it makes me generous. It makes me want to show that to other people. 
this is not in my notes, but I, I want to say that grace is the most powerful and persuasive tool that you have, that I have. It's not a gospel track. It's not knocking on somebody's door. It's not strong-arming somebody. It has nothing to do with changing the human heart. But it has everything to do of showing people what grace looks like. You can just see them turn around and go, what just happened to me? What was that? And it opens the door. Conversely, where grace is not present in a person's life, there's no way in the world that you can open the door. And we've all seen occasions of that. Where we just bang our heads on the door of somebody's life and, and if they're not willing to be gracious, if they're captivated by some other thing in their life, that door never opens up. Jesus said that a great reversal is going on, and it really is. I think this parable helps us see it. The world does not operate the way Jesus wants it to operate. The last will be first, sort of like workers in a vineyard who get paid the same wage as the person hired first in the day. Um, and I, I need to say that it's not a reversal necessarily of economic and all those sorts of things, although there's that too, but it's really more a reversal of my heart. The arrogant, the selfish, the justice-oriented, the self-righteous, and the greedy will find that God has smiled on the humble, the broken, the generous, the desperate. And to those... He offers what He has always offered to all of us. And that is grace. Let's pray. Dear Father, how difficult it is to put aside our sense of entitlement, especially since we live in a world in which that is an ultimate value. Please help us to see ourselves as You do. Please give us a compassionate, generous, and humble heart so that we might welcome all those who, on who you bestow your love. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.